This episode of Voices in AI is brought to you by Austin-based design consultancy Argo Design that gave us visions of the future like the Ambulance Drone, Wire One, the Echo Fresh Fridge, and Amazon Bin. Argo is shaping and designing for the new computing paradigm being ushered in by artificial intelligence. Learn more about Argo at argodesign.com. This is Voices in AI, brought to you by GigaOM. I'm Byron Reese. Today, our guest is Jared Ficklin. He is a partner and lead creative technologist at Argo Design. In addition, he has a wide range of other interests. He gave a well-received main stage talk at TED about how to visualize music with fire. He co-created a mass transit system called The Wire. He co-designed and created a skate park. And for a long while, he designed the highly interactive, famous South by Southwest opening parties, which hosted thousands and thousands of people each year. Welcome to the show, Jared. Thank you for having me. <laughs> so I've got to start off with my basic, my first and favorite question. What is artificial intelligence? <laughs> well, I think of it in the very mechanical way of that it is a machine intelligence that has reached a point of sentience, but I think it is just a broad umbrella where we kind of apply it to any case where the computerization is attempting to solve problems with human-like thoughts or strategies. Well, let's split that into two halves because there was a, an aspirational half of sentience mm -hmm. and then there was a practical half. Let's start with the practical half. So when it tries to solve problems that a person can solve, would you include a sprinkler that comes on when your lawn is dry as being an artificial intelligence? Because I don't have to keep track of when my lawn is dry, the, the sprinkler system does. Well, they, uh, first of all, the that this is my favorite half. <laughs> I like this half of, of, of the procedural side uh, more than the sentient side, although it's fun to think about. But when you think of this sprinkler that you just um, talked about, there's a couple ways to arrive at this. One, it can be very procedural and not intelligent at all. I can have a sensor. The sensor can throw off voltage when the sees uh, soil is of a certain dryness. That can connect an electrical circuit, which throws off a solenoid, and water begins spraying everywhere. Now, it has the magic, and a person who doesn't know that's going on might look at that and say, holy cow, it's intelligent. It has uh, watered the lawn. But it's not. That is not a machine intelligence, and that is not AI, which is a simple procedural game. There would be another way of doing that, and that's to use a whole bunch of computation to study, uh, bring in a lot of factors of the weather coming in, um, uh, the same sensor telling what soil uh, dryness is, run it through a whole lot of our algorithms and make a decision uh, based on a probability and a threshold of whether to turn on that sprinkler or not. And that would be a form of machine learning. Now, if you look at the two, they seem same on the face, but they're very different, um, not just in how they happen, but in the outcome. One of them is going to turn on the sprinkler even though there are seven inches of rain coming tomorrow, and the other is not going to turn on the sprinkler because it's aware that seven inches of rain are coming uh, tomorrow. And that little added extra judgment or intelligence, as we call it, is like, that's the key difference. That's what makes all, all the difference in this multiplied by a million times. So, to me. Just just to be clear, you you specifically invoked machine learning. Are, are you saying there is no AI without machine learning? No, I'm not saying that. That was just the strategy that I see. So applied is, is, in this situation. Is the difference between those two extremes, in your mind, is evolutionary. It's not 
a black and white difference? Yeah, there's going to be scales and gradients. There's also different strategies and algorithms that breed this outcome. But um, w you know, one was had a, a, a certain presumption of foresight and a certain algorithmic processing. Um, and in some ways, it's much smarter than a person. Uh, uh, there's a great analogy. Matthew Santoni, the coworker here, is the first one who introduced me to the analogy, and I don't know whoever came up with it, but it's the thousand, ten thousand squirrels analogy around artificial intelligence and its state today. Um, on the face of it, you would think humans are much smarter than squirrels, and in many ways we are. But a squirrel has this particularly uh, capability of hiding ten thousand nuts in a field and being able to find them the next spring. When it comes to hiding nuts, a squirrel is much more intelligent than we are. And that's another one of the key attributes of this procedural side of artificial intelligence, I think, is that these algorithms and intelligence become so focused on one specific uh, task, they actually become much more capable and greater at it than humans. And where do you think we are? Needless to say, the, the enthusiasm around AI is a fevered pitch. What do you think brought that about, and do you think it's warranted? Well, science fiction, I think, has brought it about. Um, everything from The Matrix in film to, uh, um, you know, books by John Varley or uh, even Isaac Asimov have given us a fascination about machines and artificial intelligence and what they could produce. Um, then right now, the business world is just talking all about it because I think we're at the level of the 10,000 squirrels and they can see a lot of value of putting those squirrels together to monitor something at a, you know, find those nuts in a way better than a human can. When you combine the two, it's just on everyone's lips and everywhere. Doesn't hurt that some of the big wigs of thinkers of our time are out there talking about how dangerous it could possibly be and um, that captures everyone's attention as well. What do you think of that? Where do you think, why do you think that there are people who think we're going to have an artificial general intelligence in a few years, five years is the earliest, and it's something we should be concerned about, and then there are people who say it's not going to come for hundreds of years, and it's not something we should be worried about. What, what, what is different in how they're viewing the world? Um, it might be a reflection of the world that they live in as well, but um, for me, I really, um, see two scales of danger. One is that uh, we as humans put a lot of faith in machines, particularly our generation, Generation X. Um, when I go to drive across town, and I've lived in my hometown of Austin, Texas for 17 years, I know a really good short route right through downtown. Every time I try to take it, um, my significant other would tell me that Google says there is a better route. We trust technology more than other humans. The problem comes in is like if you have these 10,000 squirrels and they're a, or a toddler level AI, you could turn over control far too early and end up in a very bad place. So for, you know, uh, a mistake could happen, it could shut down the grid, a lot of people could die. That's a form of danger I think some people are talking about, and they're talking about it on the five-year scale <laughs> because that's where it's at. Like if you, if, if you could get into that situation not because it's more intelligent than us, but just because you put more reliance on something that isn't actually very intelligent. That's a, one possible uh, danger that we're facing. 
the hundred year danger or further is I think people are afraid of you know the Hollywood scenario, the uh, Skynet scenario, which I'm less afraid of, although I have one particular view on that that does give me some concern. I do get up every morning and tell Alexa, um, Alexa, tell the robots I am on your side. <laughs> <laughs> because I know how they're kind of programming the AI. If I write that line of code 10,000 times, maybe I can get in the algorithm. <laughs> <laughs> so there are more than a few efforts underway, by one count, 22 different governments who are trying to figure out how to weaponize mm -hmm. artificial intelligence. What, does that concern you, or is that just how things are? Um, well, I'm always concerned about weaponization. But I, I'm not completely concerned. I actually you know, think uh, militaries think in a different way than um, creative technologists. Um, not that they can't, they can do great damage, but they think in terms of fail-safe, and they always have. And they're going to start from the position of fail-safe. I'm more worried about marketing and um, in a lot of areas where they don't, where quick and dirty is enough, and they don't think about fail-safe. Um, if you're going to build a, a little bit of a neural net or machine learning system, it's open sourced, it's up on the cloud, a lot of people are using it, and you're using it to give recommendations, and then at the end of the recommendations you're not satisfied with it, and you say, I know that you have recommended this mortgage from bank A, but the client is bank B, so how can we get you to recommend bank B? You, at that point, are essentially teaching the machines it's okay to lie to humans, that is not operating from a position of fail-safe. So it might just be marketing, clever terms like programmatic and whatnot, that generate Skynet, not necessarily the military-industrial complex, which really believes in kill switches. So in more kind of real-world day-to-day worries about the technology, and we're going to get to all of the opportunities and all the benefits and all of that in just a moment. Um, Start with the fear. <laughs> well, I, th I think that uh, I think that people. I think the fear, in a sense, tells us more, in a way, about the technology because it's 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 fun to think. As, as far back as, as like storytelling, we've talked about technologies that have gone amok. Mm -hmm. And it's like seems to be this thing that whenever we build something, we worry about it. Like they put electricity in the White House, but then the president you know, would never touch it and wouldn't let his family touch it. When uh, they put radios in cars, they said, oh, distracted driving, people are going to crash all the time. Uh, and, and even things like... Um, Airbags, it's going to kill you. That's right. <laughs> Uh, and Frankenstein, right? Yeah. You make you make, uh, make uh, the word robot comes to us, you know, from a well, Czech play. You just hit on a really a part of the psyche that I think people are leaning into when you said Frankenstein. It's personification that often is the dangerous thing. And there's a lot of how many times like think of people who um, dance with poisonous snakes. Sometimes it's done as a dare, but sometimes it's done because there's a personification put on the animal that gives it greater import than what it actually is. And that can be quite dangerous. Um, I think we risk that here too, just putting too much personification uh, human tendencies on the technology. So for instance, there's are, there is actually a group of people who are advocating rights for industrial robots. 
today as if they are human when they are not, when they are very much just uh, industrial machines, right? And um, that kind of psyche is what I think some people are trying to inoculate now because it walks us down this path where you're thinking you can't turn that thing off um, because it's given this personification of sentience before it has actually achieved it. It's been given this notion of rights before it actually has them. And the judgment of like, even if it's dangerous, we should hit the kill switch. There are going to be people reacting against that, saying you can't kill this thing off, um, even though it's quite dangerous to the species. That, to me, is a very interesting thing because people are, a lot of people are looking at it as if, if it becomes intelligent, it will be a human intelligence. Um, and I think that's what a lot of the big thinkers think so, about too. They're like, what? This thing is not going to be into human right. intelligence. And at which point you have to make a species level judgment on its rights and its ability to be sentient and put out there. Um, well, let's, let's, let's go back to the, to the beginning of that conversation uh, with Eliza and Weizenbaum. So uh, this man in the 60s, Weizenbaum, made this program called Eliza and it was a really simple um, chatbot mm -hmm. that, that gave you kind of, you would say, I'm having a bad day and it says, why are you having a bad day? Yeah. And then you would say, I'm having a bad day because of my mom. Why, what did your mom do to make you have a bad day? So that's it. Very simple. But what Weizenbaum uh, saw that people were pouring their heart out to it and they, knowing it was a machine, they still, and he turned on it. He was like, yeah, this is terrible. He says, when a machine says, I understand, the machine's telling a lie. There's no I there. Right. There's nothing that understands anything. So is your comment about personification a neutral one to say, I'm observing this, or are you saying personification is a bad thing or a good thing? And, and if you notice, Alexa got a name, mm -hmm. uh, Siri got a name, mm -hmm. Cortana got a name, yep. but Google Assistant didn't get right. a name. So what are your, so start there, what are your thoughts on personification in terms of like good, bad, or we don't know yet. In the way I was just talking about it, personification I do think is a bad thing and I do see it happening. In the way you just talked about it, it becomes a design tool. And yeah, as a design tool, it's very useful. I name all my cars, um, but that's the end of the personification. So you were, you were <laughs> using it to say they actually impute human characteristics on these beyond just the names. Yes, when someone is fighting for the human rights or mm -hmm. the labor rights of a industrial machine, they have put a deep personification on that machine thinking that it, they're feeling empathy for it mm -hmm. and they're feeling like it should be defended. They're seeing it as another human or as an animal. Um, they're not seeing it as an industrial machine. That's weird but, but, but <laughs> dangerous. But, but if you as a designer think, oh no, it's good to name Alexa, but I don't want people to start thinking of Alexa as right. a thing. So, But you're, you're a part of that then, right? Yeah, like we are. You're naming it and putting a face on it. and You've circled right back to what I said. Skynet is going to come from product design and marketing. It's from not. you. From you. <laughs> well, I did not name Alexa. <laughs> right. But, um, and just for the record, we're not impugning Alexa here. Yeah, we are not. I love Alexa. I have it, like I said, um, I tell her every morning. So, but um, no, but it's a design tool. Personification is this design tool. It's how far 
is it fair for us to lean into it to make it convenient in the same way people name their favorite outfit or their cars or give their house a name just as a convenience in their own mind versus actually believing this thing is human and feeling empathy for it. So when I call out to Alexa in the morning, I don't feel empathy for Alexa. I do wonder if my six-year-old son feels empathy for Alexa. Um, and if by you know having that stuff in the homes. Um, do you know the story about the Japanese kids in the mall and the robot? No. So there was this robot that was uh, put in this Japanese mall and the robot was, they were basically just trying to figure out how do you make sure the robot can get around people. Mm -hmm. And the robot was programmed to ask politely for you to step aside. And if you didn't, it goes around you. And some kids started um, stepping in front of it when it tried to go around it. And then they started bullying it, calling it names, hitting it with things. And the programmers had to had to recircle and say, okay, we need to rewrite the program so that if there are small people, kids, and there's more than a few, and there's not big people, we gotta program the robot to run away towards an adult. <laughs> and so they do this. Now, you might say, well, that's just kids being kids, but here's the interesting thing. When they later took those kids and asked them, did you feel that that the robot was human-like or machine-like, 80% said it was human-like. And then they said, do you feel like you caused it distress? 75% of them said yes. And so these kids were willing to do that even though they regarded it as human-like and capable of feeling emotion. Mm -hmm. So They treated it like another kid. <laughs> right. So does that speak, what, what, what do you read in the tea leaves of that story? Well, more of the same, I'm afraid, <laughs> uh, and that we're raising a, a generation. And, and it's funny enough, Japan really did start this. They're like, there needs to be a familiarity with robotics. And it's hard to separate robotics and AI, by the way. Uh, robotics seems like the corpus of AI, and so much of what I think the public's imagination that is placed on AI is robotics and has nothing to do with AI. <laughs> but um, that is a, a, a fascinating thing to break apart. But um, uh, and they are starting to converge now, but back when they were doing that research and the research like Wendy Jew does with a trash can on the public square, like going around and it's just a trash can on wheels and it actually evokes um, very emotional spot responses for people. People personify it almost immediately even though it's a trash can and they begin treating it. One of the things the kids do in this case is they try and attract it with trash and say, come over here, come over here, because they view it as this you know, dog that eats trash and they think that they can play with it. Um, empathy also arrives as well. Altruism arrives. Um, there's a great scene where this trash can falls over and a whole bunch of people go, oh, and they run over and, and pick it up. Um, we got to find an in, a way to reset our natural <coughs> tendencies. We've been quite, you know, technology has been our servant for all this time. Uh, and this dumb servant, and although we're aware of, as ne of it and having positive negative consequences, we've always thought of it as improving our experience. And, and we may need to adjust our thinking. Uh, the social medias might help doing, be doing that with the younger generations now because they are now seeing a great social harm that can come. And it's like, do they put that on each other or do they start putting it on the platform? But I think some people who are very smart are painting these broad brushes and they're talking about the 100-year danger or the danger five years out just because they're 
struggling with, hey, how do we change the way we think about technology as a companion? Um, because it's getting cheaper, it's getting more capable, and it's invading the area of intelligence. I remember reading about a film, I think this was in the 40s or 50s, and they just showed um, these kids, uh, college kids, uh, they were circles, and they would bounce, so they would roll around together, or a lion would come in, and, and they said, what's going on in these? And they would personify those. They would say, oh, that circle and that circle like each other, and that mm -hmm. circle. So it's like even that is something that, and, and if, we would, if we would have a tendency to do that to a circle on a film, you can only imagine that when these robots can read your face, read your emotions, and uh, emulate, and I'm not even talking about a general intelligence, I mean something that, you know, you know as a robot, it can read your face, and it can laugh at your jokes and whatnot. Uh, it's hard to see how people will be able to keep uh, their emotions from being wrapped up in it. Yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> and not be tempted to explore those areas and put them into the body of, of capability intelligence. I guess I was just reading like two days ago about uh, the clever, I'm so bad at attribution, but the clever uh, researcher, I think at MIT, created this for scanning people's social profile and then looking at their profile photo. And after enough learning, uh, uh, you know, building their little uh, neural net maybe, um, they just look at a photograph and guess whether this person is um, gay or not. Their sexual preference. And they nail it pretty well. I'm like, great, we're teaching AI to be as shallow and presumptive as other humans. <laughs> we'll just make a snap judgment based on what you look like. Uh, and maybe it's even better at us at doing it. Um, that's, I really think we need to develop machine ethics and human ethics and not be teaching the machine human ethics. Um, even if there's a feature on the other Hold side. Hold on one second. And so, that's more important than privacy. <clears throat> Slow that down in a second. We need to develop a difference between human ethics and machine ethics. Right. I understand that. And then don't teach machine human ethics. What does that mean? We don't need more capable, faster uh, human ethics out there. Because it could be quite damaging. So how, how do you see that coming about? Like, like I said, it comes about through I'm going to create a recommendation engine. No, no, I'm sorry. How do you see write down to what the you, solution coming about? The yeah, separating this, machine and human ethics. Yeah, this jokey thought experiment called Death by 4.7 Stars, where um, you assume that there is a Skynet that has come to intelligence and it's invaded like recommendation engines. And when you ask it what I should have for lunch, it suggests that you have this big fatty hamburger, a pack of Lucky Strikes, and, and a big. Uh, you know, can of caffeinated soda at this point, um, uh, you die of a heart attack younger. And just by handing out this horrible advice and you trusting it implicitly and it not caring that it's lying to you, you just extinguish all of humanity. And then Skynet's sitting there going, that was a lot easier. I thought we were gonna have a war between humans and machines and have to build the matrix. Well, we didn't have to do that. And then one of the AIs would be like, well, we did have to tell that lady to turn left on her GPS into a and the guy's like, well, technically that wasn't that hard easy. This was a very easy war. <laughs> and so, but that's why. So we need to 
that's why we need to figure out this way to, to um, put a machine ethic in there. I'm a big, I know it seems old-fashioned, but I'm a big fan of Isaac Asimov. I think he did some really good work here, and there's other groups that are now advancing that and saying, how can we put a structure in place where we just don't give these robots a, a code of ethic? And then like the way you actually build these systems is important <coughs> too, right? Um, AI should always come to the right conclusion. Um, you should not then tell it no, but come to this conclusion. You should just screen out conclusions. You should just put a control layer in that filters out the con conclusions you don't want for your business purposes. But don't build a feedback loop back in the machine that says, hey, I need you to think like my business. Um, because your business uh, might need a certain amount of misdirection and, and, and non-truths to it. And you don't maybe understand the consequences because there's a certain human filter between that stuff, what we call white lies and such, um, that allows us to work. Whereas if you amplify it, five times the million circuits and the probabilities that go down to the hundreds of thousands of lengths, you don't really know what the race condition is going to produce with that small amount of mistruths. And then good governance and controls, it says that little adjusted algorithm, which is very hard to ferret out, almost like the scene from Tron where they're picking out the little golden strands, um, doesn't move into other things. Uh, and so, this is the kind of carefulness that we need to put into as we deploy it, if we're going to be careful as these magic features come along. And we want the features. There's a whole digital lifestyle predicated on um, the ability for AI to establish context that's going to be really luxurious and awesome. And that's one reason why I even approach things like the other singularity or like only you can prevent Skynet or even like get preachy about it at all, because I want this stuff. I just got back from Burning Man. It's like, you know, Catherine Meyernack says it's a dress rehearsal for a post-scarcity society. And what's going to give us post-scarcity is um, artificial intelligence for a large part. The ability to stand up machines enough to supply our needs, wants, and desires and to sweep away the lower levels of Maslow's hierarchy and need. And then we can live in a, just a much more awesome society. <laughs> and even before that, there's just a whole bunch of cool features uh, coming down the pipeline. So I think that's why it's important to have this discussion now so we can set it up in a way that it continues to be productive, trustful, and it doesn't put you know the entire species in danger somehow, if you believe Stephen Hawking's or Elon Musk. So another area that people are concerned about, obviously, are jobs, yeah. automation and jobs. So there are three... Uh, Three narratives, and um, just to set them up for the listener, the first is that um, AI is going to take a certain class of jobs that are low-skill jobs, that there are air quotes around low-skill, low-skill jobs, and that the people who have those jobs will be unemployed, and there'll be ever more of them and competing for ever fewer low-skill jobs, mm -hmm. and we'll have a permanent Great Depression. Yeah. There's a second narrative that says, oh, no, no, you don't understand. Uh, everybody's job, your job, my job, the president's job, the, the, the speechwriter's job, the artist's job, everybody. Because mm -hmm. once the machines can learn something new faster than we can, it's game over. Yeah. And then there's a third narrative that says, no, both of these are wrong, that every time we have a new technology, no matter how disruptive it is to human activity, like electricity or engines or anything like that, people just take that technology and they use it to magnify their own productivity and they raise their wages 
and everybody uses the technology to become more productive, and that's the story of the last 250 years. So which of those three scenarios, or a fourth one, uh, do you identify with? A fourth one, a fourth one, where the burden of productivity being the guide of work is released or lessened or slackened, right? And then the people's jobs who are at, at, at the most danger are the people who hate their jobs. <laughs> their jobs are at the most danger. Uh, those are the ones that AI is gonna take over first and fastest. Because um, the truth is, there'll be- Why is that not my first setup? Which is, there are some jobs that it's gonna take over putting those people out of work. Because there'll be one guy who really loves driving people around in his car and is very passionate about it, and he'll still drive his car and we'll still get into it. We'll call the human car. So he won't be forced out of his job because he likes it. But the other 100 guys who hated driving a car for a living, their job will be gone because they weren't passionate enough to protect it or find a new way to do it or enjoy doing it anymore. That's the slight difference, I think. And so and what then I you said say those you said. 100 people won't use the technology to find new employment. They will, I think then, an entire economy of a different kind of employment that, fa that works around passion will ultimately evolve. And I'm not going to put a time scale on this, but I'm a, let's take the example of ecopoesis, which I'm a big fan of, which comes out of Stanley K. Robinson's Mars book, probably before that, but it's one of the first times I encountered it. So ecopoesis is a combination of ecology poets, ecopoesis. So if you practice it, you're an eco-poet. And this is how it would work in the real world, right? We would take Bill Gates' proposal and we would tax robots. And we would take that money and then we would place an ad on Craigslist. And we would say, I would need approximately 60,000 people who I can pay $60,000 a year to to go into the Lincoln National Forest and we want you to garden the thing. We want you to remove the right amount of deadfall. We want you to remove invasive species. We want you to create glades. We want you to create for the elk to reproduce. And we want you to do this on the millions of hectares that is the Lincoln National Forest. And in the end, we want it to look like the mural woods. We want it to be just the most gorgeous piece of garden property possible. And how many people who are driving cars today or working as landscapers wouldn't just look at that Craigslist ad and immediately apply for the opportunity to spend the next 20 years of their life guarding this one piece of forest or this one piece of land because they're following their passion into it. And all of society benefits from it, right? Um, and that's just one example of what I mean. I think you can begin a thought experiment where you can see whole new categories of jobs crop up, but also people who are so passionate in what they're doing now that they simply don't let the AI do it. So I was, uh, I was on a cooking show once. I live a weird life. But um, while we were on it, we were talking about robots taking jobs just like <coughs> you and I were. And we were talking about will there be a, a war between, you know, will robots, what jobs will robots take? Will ro robots could take the, the job of a chef. The sous chef walks out the back and he says, no, it won't. And we're like, we're, we're like, oh, we're, here are the nerds discussing this. What do you mean, no, it won't? He's like, because I'll put a knife in its head. <laughs> And I will keep cooking. That's a guy who's passionate about his job. He's going to defend it against the robots and AI. And people will will follow that passion and see value in it and, and pursue it. So I I think it's 
there's a fourth one that's somewhere between uh, one and three that actually is what comes out of this. Uh, not that there won't be short-term disruption or pain, but uh, ultimately I think what will happen is humanity will self-actualize here and uh, people will so, find jobs they want to do. So that sounds, just to kind of break it down a little bit, that sounds like the WPA, World War, uh, yeah. the Depression, it says, yeah. let's have people paint murals, build bridges, plant saplings. There was uh, a lot of that that went on, yeah. And, and, um, and so you advocate for that. I think that that is a great bridge. When we're in that point be between post-singularity or in an abundant society, post-scarcity, and we're in this in-between point. And then, but even before that, um, like in the very near term, um, a lot of jobs are gonna be created by the deployment of, of AI. It actually just takes a whole lot of work to deploy. And it doesn't necessarily uh, reverberate into removing a bunch of jobs. Um, often it's a very minute amount of productivity adds to a job and it has an amplifying effect. Uh, the industry of QA is going to explode. Radiologists are not going to, their jobs are not going to be stolen, they're going to be shifted to the activity of QA to make sure that this stuff is, is um, identifying uh, correctly in the short term. And I, I mean, over the next uh, 20 to 50 years, there's going to be a whole lot of that going on. And then there's going to be just a whole lot of robotics fleet maintenance and such <laughs> that's going to be going on. And uh, um, people are going to, some people are going to enjoy doing this work and they'll gravitate to it. So I, but, and then, then we're going to go through this, this transition. Um, or ultimately, when when the robots start taking care of something really lower lower level, people are going to follow their passions into higher level, more interesting work. And you would pay for this by taxing the robots. Well, that was Bill Gates' idea, and I think there's a point in history where that will function. Uh, but ultimately, the uh, uh, the optimistic concept is that this revolution will bring about so so much abundance that the way an economy works itself will change quite a bit so thus you pay for it out of just doing it <laughs> if we get to the point where I can stick out my hand and a drone drops a hammer in it when I need a hammer to build something um, how do you pay for that transaction if that's backed with a tokamak reactor we've created fusion and energy is superfluous how do you pay for that it's such a minuscule thing that you, you might just, there, there just might not be a way to pay for it, that paying for things will just completely change altogether. So you are a designer. I'm a product designer, yes. That's and what I do so like you are designing, so how do you take all of that, how do you take all of that and how does that affect your job today or tomorrow or what you're doing now? Like what, what, what are the kinds of projects you're doing now that you have to apply all of this to? <laughs> so um, this is how young it actually is, is I am currently just involved in what does the tooling look like to actually deploy this at any kind of scale. And when I say deploy, I don't mean sentience or anything close to it. 
but just something that can identify typos better than the current spell check system <laughs> or identify typos in a very narrow sphere of um, jargon that uh, other people don't. that's that's the problems being worked on right now we're scraping pennies outside of, of, of dollars and it just needs a whole lot of tooling on that right now and so the way I get to apply is quite fundamentally um, help influence what is the controls, governments, and governance and transparency going to look like, at least in the narrow sphere where I'm working with people. And um, after that, it's all futurism, my friend. <laughs> but on a day-to-day -day basis at Argo, what, what kinds of projects, where do you see kind of designing for this AI world? Is it all just down in the tooling area? No, that's just one that's very tactical. We I are see. actually doing that, and so it's it's absorbing a lot of my day. Um, we have had a few clients come in and be like, how do I integrate AI? And you can find out it's a very ticklish problem of like, is your business model ready for it? Is your data stream ready for it? Uh, do you have the costing ability to put it all together? It's very easy to sit back and imagine the possibilities. But when you get down to the brass tracks of integration and implementation, it starts getting, uh, you start realizing, I need some more people here. <laughs> To, to work on it. So other than putting out visions that might influence the future and perhaps enter into the zeitgeist, um, uh, our opinion on how this could transpire, we're really down on the weeds on it, to be honest. So, but in terms of far out, you've referred to the singularity a number of times. So do you believe in kind of Kurzweil's vision of the singularity? I actually have something other called the other singularity. Right. <laughs> it's not as antagonistic as it sounds. It's meant like the other cousin, right? That um, uh, while the singularity is happening, his grand vision, which is very lofty, um, there's this other singularity going on. This one of uh, cast-offs of the exponential technology curve. So as computational power gets uh, more expensive, um, yesterday's computer, the quad-core uh, um, computer that I first had for $3,000 is now like a $40 gum stick. Pretty soon it's going to be a 40 cent, um, uh, you know, uh, MCU uh, computer on a chip. And uh, at that point, you can apply computational power to really mundane, imperiant, and ordinary things. And we're seeing that happen at a huge pace. And there's something that I like to call the single function computer and the new sub 1000. Uh, when in the 90s when computers were out there they were out there for f really 40 50 years before mass adoption hit and from a marketing perspective um, it was said that until the price comes down to $1000 for below $1000 for a multifunction computer they won't reach adoption soon as it did they spread widely we still buy these sub 1000 computers some of us buy slightly more in order to get an apple on the front of them and stuff but uh, the next sub-1,000, we had to get 100 computers in the home for under $1,000. That's being worked on now. And what they're going to do is they to take the function of these single-function computers that uh, take massive amount of computational power and dedicate them to one thing. The Nest would be my first example that people are most familiar with. It has the same processing power as the original MacBook G4 laptop. And all that processing power is just put to algorithmically keeping your home comfortable and a very exquisite out-of-the-box experience. Um, and we're seeing more and more of these experiences uh, erupt. But they're not happening in this like elegant, like singularity, intelligent-fed path. 
They just do what they do procedurally or with a small amount of intelligence and they do it extremely well and it's this big messy mess. And it's entirely possible that we reach a form of the singularity without sentient artificial intelligence guiding it. Okay, an author that I really love that works in this space a lot is Cory Doctorow. He has a lot of books that kind of propose this vision where uh, machines are somehow taking care of this lower level of Maslow's hierarchy of needs and creating a post-scarcity society, but they're not artificially intelligent. They have no sentient. They're just very, very capable of what they do and there's a profundity of them to do a lot of things. And that's the other singularity, and that's quite possibly how it may happen, um, especially if we decide that sentience is so dangerous we don't need it. But I find it really encouraging and optimistic that there is this path to the future that does not quite require it, that could still give us a lot of what we see uh, in these singularity-type uh, visions of the future, the kind of uh, um, uh, just abundance and, and uh, ability um, to not be toiling each day for survival. Um, I love that. So I think Kurzweil thinks that the singularity comes about because of emergence. Yeah. Because at some point you just bolt enough of this stuff together and it starts glowing mm-hmm. with some emergent behavior that it isn't a conscious decision that we decide, let's build. Yeah, the exponential technology curve, right. it predicts so, the point at which a computer can have the same number of computations as we have neurons, right? At which point, uh, I agree with you, it kind of implies that sentience will just burst well, That's forth. what he, he says. Yeah. I mean, that's a, that's a big, I mean, that's the question, isn't it? Yeah. My question I don't think it happens that way, right. but I what do you think sentience happens? just bursts forth at that moment. So first of all, taking a step back, um, how are, in what sense are you using the word sentience? Are you using it? <laughs> That's right. Because strictly speaking, it means able to sense something, able to feel. That's it. Yeah, no, then I Then there's sapience, which is intelligent. That's mm-hmm. what we are, homo sapiens. Yeah. Then there's consciousness, which is the ability to have subjective experience. That, that, that tea you just drank tasted like something and you tasted it. Yeah. So what, in what sense do you, are you thinking of computers not necessarily having to be that? Well, closer to the latter, something that is aware of itself and begins okay. guiding its own priorities. And and you think we are that? We have that. Humans. Yeah. And wh- where do you think it comes from? Is it an emer- Do you think it's an emergent property of our brains? Or is it something we don't know? Or, or what? Do you have an opinion on that? I mean, you're, uh, I'm a spiritualist, so I think it derives from the resonance of the universe that and, was placed there for a reason. <laughs> and so in your in that view of the world, machines won't just like we wake up one day and all you can't manufacture that in other words. You can't come out of a factory in, in some place. To be metaphysical, yes, you know, it, or like Orson Scott Carr, will the phylotics plug into the machine, right? And Ooh. suddenly it wakes up and it has the same, you know, cognitive powers as a human. Yeah, I don't know. I don't so what you do, which is very interesting, is you say, what if that assumption, that one assumption, that someday the machine kind of opens its eyes, what if that one assumption isn't true, then what does the world look like of yeah. ever better computers that just do their thing and, yeah. and don't have an ulterior motive? Yeah, and you, the truth is they could also happen in parallel. Both could be happening at the same time as they are today and still progress. But I think it's really fascinating. Uh, I think some people 
guard themselves. They say like, if this doesn't happen, there's nothing smart enough to make all the decisions to improve humanity and we're still gonna have to toil away and make them. And I say, no, it might be entirely possible that that there's this path where just these, these little machines and profundity do it for us and sentient is not necessary. It also opens up the possibility that if sentience does just pop into existence right now, it makes very fair the debate that you could just turn it off. That you could commit the genocide of the machine and say, uh, we don't want you or need you, we're gonna take this other path because we yeah. Skynet them. We Skynet them. <laughs> and we keep our autonomy and we don't worry about the perils. I think part of the fear about this kind of like, uh, you know, awareness, what we've been calling it sentience um, kind of theory on AI is this fear that we just become dependent on them and subservient to them. And Are we that's already? the only path. But it, I don't think it is. Mm -hmm. I think there's another path where technology takes us to a place of great capability and so far so profound that it even could remove the base layer of, of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Uh, you know, I think of books like Maker, Makers by Cory Doctorow and others that produce that are 40 years in the future and you start thinking of micro-manufacturing. We just put out this vision on, Am on Amazon and Whole Food, which was another nod towards this way of thinking that, you know, if you can, you know, Ignoring the energy source a little bit because we think it's going to sort itself out. Everyone with solar on their hands or tokamak. Like if you can get these uh, hydroponic gardens into everyone's garage, produce is just going to be so universally available. It goes back to being the cheapest of, of staples. That uh, robots could um, reduce spoilage or by matching demand. And this would be a great place for AI to live. Right? AI is really good at at examining this notion of like, I think you're going to use those Brussels sprouts or I think your neighbor is going to use them first. So we envision this fridge that has a door on, on the outside, which really solves a lot of delivery problems. You don't need those goofy cardboard boxes with foil and ice in them anymore. Just put it in the fridge. It also can move the point of purchase all the way into the home. And when you combine that with the notion of, of this dumber AI, right, that's just sitting there deciding whether you or the neighbor needs Brussels sprouts, it can put the Brussels sprouts there opportunistically thinking, man, maybe he'll get healthy this week. And when I don't take them before they spoil, I can move them over to my neighbor's fridge where they use them. And we just root so much spoilage out of the system that, that nutrition just uh, um, raises and becomes more ubiquitous. Now, if people wanted to harvest those goods or tend those gardens, they could, but if people didn't, robots could make up the gap. And next thing you know, you have a food system that's decoupled from like the, the modern manufacturing system and is scalable and can grow with uh, humanity in a very fascinating way. Do you think we're already dependent on the machine? Like if, if an EMP wave just fried all of our electronics, do you think we're, you know, population that we, that we don't, a, a sizable part of the population dies? Um, uh, I think that's very likely. Yeah. All right. Ignoring all the disaster and such right then, um, it would take a whole lot of, and, and I don't necessarily think that's purely a technological judge, judgment. It's just the slowness of humanity to change their priorities. In other words, we would realize too late that we all needed to rededicate our resources to, to a certain kind of agriculture, for instance, um, uh, before the echo move through the machine. Um, that, that would be my, my fear on it. Um, 
that we just we're just a little we like we fall in grain our habits and we're a little too sh slow to change them. So on a on a slightly different note, there's um. Man, way to kill off humanity three times in this podcast, though. That's right. <laughs> Does that right. happen, like, in most of these that you are doing? No, or? no. Oh, it's great. Really, it's just it's my really dark view. <laughs> hard to kill us off, isn't it? Yeah. Because uh, if it was going to happen, it seems like it would have happened before when we had no technology and there were, you know, there were, there were just uh, three million of us 5,000 years ago. And... Yeah. Uh, and by some counts, thousands of us at one time. Uh, and woolly mammoths running back around. Back then, 99% of our technology was dedicated to survival, mm -hmm. and it's a way lower percentage now. Mm -hmm. uh, and in fact, we invented a percentage of technology that is uh, dedicated to our destruction. And so I don't know if, if how much the odds have changed. I think. It's a really fascinating discussion. Probably something that AI could determine for us. Well, I don't know that the percentage of our, it would be the gross amount, right? Because yeah. you could say the percentage of money we're spending on food is way down, but that doesn't mean we're eating less. So the percentage of money we're spending on survival is maybe way down, but that doesn't mean we're spending less. Yeah. Um, so in a really real world kind of way, there's a European initiative that says that when an AI makes a decision that affects you, you have a right to know why it made that decision. Mm -hmm. There. What do you think of that? You seem to be. Well, what I, I won't impute anything onto you. What do you think of that? Uh, uh, yeah, I think Europe is ahead of us here. I think that got this funny thing is a lot of that um, decision was reported as like rights for AI or rights for robots, but when you really look dig into it, it's rights for humans, and it, they're good rights. Yeah, you have and. If I were to show you designs out of my um, presentations right now, I have this big design that you're just searching for a car, and it says, can I use your data to recommend a car? And you click on that button and say yes. And that's the way it should be designed. We have taken so many liberties with people's uh, data and privacy up till now, and we need to start including them in on the decision. And then at the bottom of it, it has a slider that says the car you want, the car your wife wants, right? You should have also transparency and control of the process, right? Because machine learning and artificial intelligence produces um, results with this kind of context, and you should be have allowed to change the context. First of all, it's going to make for a better experience. Because if it's looking at all my data historically and it's recommended to me the kind of sleeping bag I should buy, it might need to be aware and I might have to make it aware that I'm moving to Alaska next week um, because it would make a different recommendation. So this kind of transparency in government, actually, and I also think they put another curious thing and we'll see how it plays out through the court. But I believe they also said that if you get hurt by it, the person this was the robotic side. The person who made the robot is responsible for it. Some human along the way made a decision that hurt you is the thesis. Yes, or <coughs> the business corpus that right. put this robot out there is is responsible for it. There's the closest thing to some of the, the th you know, like three laws of robotics or something like put into law <laughs> that we've seen yet. So it's very advanced thinking and I like it and it's already in, in our design practice. We're already trying to convince clients uh, 
um, that this is the way to begin designing experiences. More than that, we're trying to convince our fellow designers because we, we have a certain uh, role in this that we can, can utilize um, to really design the experiences this way so that they are open and transparent to the person using them. That little LED green light says, hey, the AI is involved in this decision, so you can go, ah, oh, I might judge this differently. But where does that end? For instance, you could, or does that inherently limit the advance of the technology? Because you could say, uh, I rank number two in Google for some search, some business-related search, mm -hmm. and somebody else ranks number one. And I could go to Google and say, why do I rank number two? And they rank number one. And Google could, in all fairness, say, we don't know. Yeah, we don't it's know. a problem. And so do you say, no, no, you have to know. You've got to limit the technology until you can answer that question. Yeah. Or do you just say, we don't know how people make decisions. Yeah. You can't you can't ask the loan officer, you know, why, or you can't ask the girl why she didn't go out with you. Why aren't you going out with me? Yeah. That affects me. It's like, I'm just not going to. This, this is, I mean, you frame the consumer's dilemma in everything from organic apples to search results, and it's going to be a push and pull. But I would say, yeah, um, if you're using artificial intelligence, um, you should know a little bit about how it's being produced. And I think there'll be a market for it too. There, there's gonna be a value judgment on the other side. I really think that um, some of the ways we're looking at designing experience is much more valuable and to the user to, to see a lot of these things and know it. To be able to adjust the rankings based on the context that they're in and, and they're gonna prefer that experience. So I think eventually it'll all uh, catch up in the end. You know, it's funny because... Uh, uh, one last story. I'm sorry. Yeah. One last story, okay? I used to sell snowboards. It's in, so much as it's used for commerce. It's an easy example for us to understand um, retail. I used to sell snowboards, and I got really good at it. My intelligence on it like, got really focused. And I would say it had a pretty good hit rate. Someone could walk in the door, and if I wrote down what snowboard they were going to buy, I was probably right 85 to 90% of the time got really good at it. By the end of the season, you just know. But if I walked up to any of those people and said, here's your snowboard, I would never make a sale. <laughs> I would never make a sale. There's something in humanity that creeps them out, they walk away, the deal's not closed. There's a certain amount of window dressing, song and dance, gathering of information to make someone comfortable before, it get, before they will make that decision to accept the value. Now, up till now, technology has been very restrictive. You write the code, it does what the code does, but that's gonna change because the probabilities and all, and the context uh, gathering goes away, right? But to be successful, they're still gonna have to have that path, and it's the perfect place to put in what we were just talking about, the transparency, the governance, and the, governance and the guidance to the consumer to let them know that they're on that type of experience. Why? You're gonna sell more snowboards if you do. Do you think, in your view of a world where we don't have this kind of conscious AGI, we're one, one notch below that, mm -hmm. will those machines still pass the Turing test? Will, they, will you still be able to converse with them and, and not know that it's a person, you're, that it's a computer you're talking to? I think they'll get darn close. And then does it's that... not all the way there. You, you, at the very beginning of our chat, you... Indicated. I don't think you'll converse with them as much <coughs> as people imagine, though. Fair this enough. Is, I'm going to ask you a privacy question, which is the minute that like every phone conversation can actually be understood. Mm -hmm. Like right now, privacy 
is largely buried on uh, just the sheer amount of data. No thing can listen to every phone conversation. Oh. Nothing can do that. But once it can under once a machine can listen to them all, then, then it can. Yeah, you, we can hear them all. Correct. Right now, but we can't listen to them all. Correct. Yeah. And then not long, uh, I read that uh, you know uh, we now get human level lip reading from cameras, so you can. And yeah. you get facial recognition. Yeah. And so you could understand that eventually that's just a giant, it's just a giant data mining problem. And it isn't even a nefarious yeah. one, the technology, because the same technology that rec recommends what you should buy someplace, it's the same technology. It's just yeah. can be purpose. So tell me what you think about privacy in a world where all of that information is recorded and I'm going to use understood loosely, but yeah. able to be. Yeah able to be queried. Yeah, this is I don't want a machine knowing what I had for lunch question. Mm -hmm. The machine mm -hmm. doesn't care, people care. What we have to do is work to develop a society where privacy is a virtue, not a right. When privacy is a right, you have to maintain it through security. The security is just too valuable, uh, especially given the modern era. Now there'll always be that certain kind of thing. But privacy as a virtue is different. If you could structure a society where privacy is a virtue, well then it's okay that I know you have it on lunch. It's virtuous for me to pretend like I don't know what you had for lunch, to not act on what I know, don't know have for lunch, and not allow it to influence my behavior. It sounds almost Victorian. And I think there is a reason that in the cyberpunk movement, in science fiction, you see this steampunk kind of Victorian return, right? The Victorian era, we had a lot of etiquette based on just the size of society and the new movement of information meant that you knew a lot about people's business that you didn't know anymore. And the way we dealt with it was this kind of like really pent up morality where we it was virtuous to pretend like you didn't know, almost to make it as a game and not to allow it to influence your decision making, right? Only priests do this anymore. <laughs> but we're all gonna have to pick up the skill and train our children, and I think they're training themselves to do it, frankly, right now, uh, because of the impacts of, of social media on their lives. And we'll be re might return to this second Victoria era where I know everything about you, but it's virtuous. Now, that needs to bleed into the software and the hardware architectures as well. Hard drives need to forget, code algorithms need to forget, or they need to decide what information they treat as virtuous. This way we can have our cake and eat it too. Otherwise we're just going to be in this weird security battle forever um, and it's not going to function so well. The only people are going to win in that one are the governments. Um, we're just going to have to take it back in this manner. Now you can just see how much optimism bleeds through me when I, when I say it this way and I, I don't... Um, I'm not totally unconscious or <laughs> of that. I'm cognizant of, of my uh, uh, optimism here. But I really think that's, that's the key to this. Anytime we're faced with a feature, we just give up our privacy for it. And so we may as well start designing the world that can uh, operate with um, less privacy as a right. It's funny because I always hear this canard that young people don't care about privacy, but I know. That's not my experience. Like, uh, in my, I have four kids. My oldest son always comes in and says, how can you, you know, use that? It's listening to everything you're doing. Or how do you have these settings on your computer the way you do? And, and I'm like, eh, yeah, what, what, what? But, uh, so do you, but you say not only are they value it more, but they're learning etiquette around it as well. Yeah, they're redefining. They, they see what their friends did last night on social media, but they're like not gonna mention it when they see them.
That's right. And they're going to monitor their own behavior or not. They, they, they just have to in order to function socially. We as creatures need this. I think we grew up in this really uh, a more unique place. Um, so, and, you know, I lived in, it's goofy, but I lived in 1867. You had very little privacy in 1867. That's right. You did that PBS thing. <laughs> yeah, I did that PBS thing, that living history experiment. And even though it's 14 people and the, the impacts of a secret or something s slipping out could be just massive, but everyone has that impact, right? And there was an anonymity that came from the Industrial Revolution that we as Gen Xers probably enjoyed the zenith of. And we've watched it, social media pull about it back apart. But I don't think it's a new thing to humanity. And I think ancestral memory will come back. I think people will survive it just fine. You've referred to, uh, you know, in 40-something guests, you've referred to science fiction way more than even the science fiction writers I have on the show. <laughs> so, I'm a fanboy. Tell me, no, <laughs> but tell me what you, um, tell me what, what you think is really thoughtful and considered so, well, who was it that said, uh, the, some, I think Frank Herbert said, sometimes the perfect purpose of science fiction is to keep the future from happening. Yes. So, tell me uh, some examples. I'm going to put you on the spot I just here. heard that from Cory Doctorow like two weeks ago. Oh, really? I heard, thing, it, yeah. I heard it like, because uh, I used to really be uh, annoyed by dystopian movies because I don't believe in them. Mm -hmm. And yet, I'm required to see them because everybody asks me about them. Oh, my gosh, did you see Elysium? And I'm like, yes, I saw Elysium. And, you know, so I have to, like, go see these. And so they used to, like, really annoy me. And then I, I saw that quote a couple of years ago, and it, it really changed me because now I can go to them and say, ah, that's not going to happen because, you know, I, our numbers, you know. Uh, but anyway, so two questions. What, um, what are there any futures that you have seen in science fiction that you think will happen? Like what, when you look at it, say, that looks like it to me. Because it sounds like you're a, a Gene Roddenberry uh, futurist. Um, I'm more of a Cory Doctorow futurist. Um, uh, but, um, and then are there ones you have seen that you think <laughs> that could happen, but I don't think it's going to happen? But it could. Um, I'm still on the first question. I think uh, in my recent readings, like the whole Stanley K. Robinson and um, uh, Cory Doctorow um, works very good. Um, now, let's talk about Ian M. Banks <laughs> and the whole culture series, which is so far future and so grand in scale and so driven by AI that knows it's superior to humans but is fascinated with them, <laughs> therefore doesn't want to uh, destroy them but rather to attach themselves to society. Um, I don't think that, could ha that is going to happen, but it could happen. <laughs> it's really fascinating. So it's one of those bigger than the galaxy type universes where you have like mega ships that are mega AIs and can do the calculations of a trillion humans in one second. And they keep humans around for two reasons. Um, and this is how they think about it. Um, one, they like them. They're fascinating and curious. And two, there's 13 of them that by sheer random number, like they built, hmm. are always right. Hmm. <laughs> and therefore, they need a certain density of humanity just so they can consult them when they can't come up with an answer of enough certainty. <laughs> so there are 13 humans that are always right. Yeah, because there's so many trillions and trillions of them. And they, they, 
frustrating things to these AI ships are they can't figure out why they're always right and then no one has decided which theory is correct. But the predominant leading theory is that they're just making random decisions and because there's so many humans, these 13 random decisions happen to always be correct. <laughs> and the humans themselves, we, we get a little profile of one of them and she's rather depressed because <laughs> we need to we we can't we can't be fatalists as a species Not like that. Jared that is a wonderful place to leave this I want to thank you for a fascinating hour we have covered I think more ground than any other talk I've had and I thank you for your time thank you it was fun I would like to thank the sponsor of this episode Argo Design Argo is a product design consultancy, a growth partner to entrepreneurs, and an incubator of new experiences. Argo works with clients who share one common trait, the drive to create something innovative and valuable. Schedule a consultation or studio visit at Argo. Just email info at argodesign.com.